All right, brothers and sisters, so we are continuing our work through the Baptist Catechism, which has informed us of so many important things and enriched our understanding of this faith that has become ours through the gracious work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we uh, last week went through question 102, which answered the what question concerning the Lord's Supper. What is the table? Uh, The Lord's Supper, we learned, is a New Testament ordinance that was instituted by Jesus Christ himself. It involves the giving and the receiving of bread and wine according to his appointment. These elements are there to show us his victorious death. Uh, Worthy receivers are not after a physical and carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and his blood through this sacrament. And those who partake of it receive all the benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. And so thank you, Brother Stephen, for preaching that for us last week. And I'm going to build off that foundation that was said as we look at questions 103 and 104 today. Question 103 and 104 answer the who question regarding the Lord's Supper. Who can participate in this ordinance? And to a lesser extent, the how question. How should we go about uh, faithfully observing this ordinance? So that's what we're going to discuss tonight. Who is to participate in the table and who's not to participate in the table? And how are we to conduct the Lord's Supper? To be uh, sure, for those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, this ordinance is to be seen as a blessing from God and as a, a kind of channel through which his ongoing grace flows to the saints. It should be an activity that those who have tasted of God's mercy look forward to. It should be something that we are excited to experience for it brings to mind the pivotal pivotal act by which our greatest enemies, sin and death, were finally vanquished for us. But most likely the person who is not following after Jesus, the non-believer, would not really see the benefit in this kind of ordinance at all. They would not desire the table for those reasons that I just mentioned. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't times when those who are not followers of Jesus Christ will not feel compelled to take the table? What would cause someone who is not a believer to want to partake in this ordinance? There are a few things, I think. Um, They might do that because they're trying to take part of what is going on in the group they connect themselves to. And so there is a natural human aversion to exclusion. So if there's somebody who's coming to church, maybe they're not really a believer yet, they don't really understand the gospel, But if they see the people around them stand up and go forward to receive these elements, there might very well be a compulsion in them to just go up and do the same just because that's what the group is doing. There is an idea also in culture, even if you don't know the gospel well or know your need for Christ, there is this idea that this is something maybe that God has commanded his people to do. And so I think generally, especially when there are eyes on us, we try to avoid breaking laws and breaking rules because we don't want to be seen as someone who's in trouble. And so there might be aversion to law-breaking that might cause somebody who's not necessarily a follower of Christ but doesn't want to appear as a sinful person to feel compelled to go forward and take the elements. Some people might come forward just because they think there's a kind of special blessing for God that they don't understand, that if they take the bread and they drink the wine, that maybe it's going to somehow be a good luck charm to them or it's going to maybe somehow wash away some of their sins. There's a lot of misunderstandings about the ordinances of God, especially for those who don't have the Holy Spirit. So that might prompt someone to think they should go forward and receive the bread and the wine. And of course, our church has many children in it. And as children, we tend to instinctively do what mom and dad do. 
And so by following their example, sometimes we might have a child who thinks they need to go forward and take the table because they've seen the example of that in their parents. And so we do have examples of folks who uh, might feel compelled to go forward and take of these elements who probably are not ready to take of these elements yet. And if the table was not a means of grace, a channel by which the grace of God flows to the saints, and if it didn't serve as an actual important function in the life of the believer to encourage us and strengthen us, then it probably wouldn't matter very much to us who participated in it. But the reality is this. The table is a literal means of grace. It is a device by which God brings his blessings to those who are a part of this new covenant connection. And furthermore, it is a dramatic presentation of his atoning work. It is a representation of what he has done. So, question 103, who are the proper subjects of the Lord's Supper? And we're going to see here that not everybody is a proper subject of the Lord's Supper. Not everyone should take of communion when we uh, present this ordinance to the church. The answer for question 103 is this. Let me put this on the screen. Try not to forget to progress this for us here. Turn it on. Oh, boy. Oh. Here we go. All right. So who are the proper subjects of the Lord's Supper? And the answer is they who have been baptized upon a personal profession of their faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from dead works. So this means of grace is connected in a very interesting way to another means of grace, to baptism, which we have already spent some time learning about. And in Acts, we see a connection to those two ordinances, starting in verse 41 of chapter 2. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so we see a natural order of things that uh, we can look at and identify in the patterns of the church as it spreads throughout first Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so when we look at the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is a a simplified confession of faith that our church ascribes to, speaking of the ordinances of the church, it says that baptism being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. Prerequisite means you need to do that first, and then you can do the second thing. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. And so that's, that's a useful statement. It's very helpful to us to see that there is, there is a, an important connection between baptism, which is an outward and public profession of faith that connects you to the body of Christ, that connects you to the church, And then also the taking of the Lord's Supper, which is a celebration of your connection to Christ and his work and to the other believers who have been redeemed by his blood. And so our church is actually at this time working towards exposing First Family to another confession of faith, which is much more detailed in what it describes about what Christians ought to believe who take the Bible seriously. And so this second London Baptist Confession of 1689 expands upon what is written in the, uh, the original Baptist Faith and Message 2000 that was important to us for many years. And, and so I'd like to share just one article of 
eight articles, if that little paragraph is all that is said about the Lord's Supper in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, you can see that the London Baptist Confession has two pages about the Lord's Supper and baptism. So I'm just going to share with you Article 30, Section 1, uh, which speaks of the Lord's Supper and says, It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, and their further, further engagement in and to all the duties that they owe to him. The supper is to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with Christ to each other. So if this is what the Lord's Supper is, and uh, the, Baptist, uh, the London Baptist Confession of 1689 is deeply rooted in Scripture, uh, then we should pause and consider the fact that the Lord's table is not just a time to get blessed, generically. It is also a time where we rejoice in the blessing that God has given to us in connecting us to one another through faith in Jesus Christ. So if somebody is a true believer, then the Lord's table is for them. They belong to the family of God and they are fed by the Father as sons and daughters of the Father. Um, This article in the London Baptist Confession is grounded in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 through 17. The Apostle Paul writes there that the cup of blessing that we bless, speaking of the Lord's table, speaking of the wine which represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us on the cross, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Look at that word participation and think about what that means. Those who partake of that cup are showing that the blood that Jesus shed on the cross was not just random blood. It was not just Christ's blood, but it was Christ's blood shed for his people. So those who partake of the cup are saying that Christ's sacrifice was for me. It goes on to say the bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so the body of Christ, the the physical corporal body of Jesus, was punished in the place of sinners who trust in him so that we might have our sins washed away forever. Now, when Jesus went and died on the cross, he didn't just wash sin away completely so that no one ever has to deal with sin again. He washed sin away for those who are his people, for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. So somebody who rejects Jesus Christ and says they want to have nothing to do with Jesus, Jesus's blood does not cover them. It does not cleanse them. They are therefore not participating in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, says the Apostle Paul in verse 17, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So does that give us a better understanding of what the table represents? It's not just a a generic blessing of sorts that anybody who wants to come and get a blessing receives. It's literally a significant symbol of our connection to our Father God through Christ and to our brothers and sisters who have all trusted in him. So the parameters of eating this covenantal meal are very important. This is a meal for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Those who partake of it should be in the new covenant together with one another. How do we have good confidence that they are so, that they are connected to the family of God? Now, there are several things that we could consider and they're worth thinking about, but chief among them is whether they have been baptized as a public profession of their faith. When somebody goes forth in baptism, and when we spoke on baptism a few weeks back, uh, we spoke about how someone who is baptized is making a profession. They are testifying publicly 
that the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross was work that has now transformed them and made them new. As they have believed on Jesus, the old life that they lived away from God, a life independent from God and not underneath his law in their minds, that life is now dead and put to rest. And because of our faith in Jesus now, we're living a new and a different life, a life that trusts in him, a life that glorifies him. And so when we get baptized, it is a dramatic representation of our old life, our sinful life independent from God being put to death. When you're put under the water, it's as if your old self is being buried. And then as you're raised out of that water, it's like you're being raised anew, like you're being born again to show the world that you're not who you were before you trusted in Jesus Christ. The baptism itself does not save you. It is not the means by which he changes your heart. He does that through a spiritual work of regeneration, but it is an outward sign of the inward work that he is doing within you. And if someone has gotten to the point where they have come before the ministers who give baptism to people and they've shared that testimony with that minister and they have been able to articulate their understanding that yes, I am a sinner, that yes, there is nothing I can do to wash my own sins away, that I could try for the rest of my life and it would not be enough. Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the one atonement for sinners. And yes, I believe that I put my faith in him, then he will save me and make him, me his own. If someone's got to the point where they're able to profess that, then we can have confidence that they are connected with the body of Christ through all time and in all places. They are a part of that family. It should also be a strong connection to the church body that baptized them. And you might remember that we spoke about that some a couple of weeks back when we were getting into more detail on baptism. If you didn't catch those Sunday evening services, I encourage you to go back and listen to them on the podcast. So why does it matter? It matters because the blood and the body of the Savior are not only in view here. They are understood to be representative of the bond that is shared between Christ and his church. And we do not want to affirm that someone is a participant in the blood and the body of the Savior if they are in fact outside of the flock. Now, there are some exceptions to this. There might be a situation where someone has given their life to Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit has changed their heart and they have a desire to go forth in baptism, but there hasn't been an opportunity to do that yet. In a situation like that, would it be okay for them to come forward and partake of the table? Yes, because the baptism isn't the thing that saves them. The Holy Spirit is the thing that saves them. If there's evidence that they are truly trusting in Jesus Christ, then there's no point in us withholding the table from them. Let them come forward as a new little brother, as a new little sister in Jesus and partake of those elements. And at the first opportunity, let's give them also that great blessing of the other ordinance, baptism, so that they can share with the world what God is doing inside of them. Now, how do we administer the table? Uh, the fact that there are proper subjects of this ordinance ought to shape the way that we think about the Lord's Supper as well as the way that we conduct the Lord's Supper. Should anyone be able to pour wine and break some bread and call it the Lord's Supper? Well, if the scripture is true here, which tells us that we need to be cautious because the Lord's Supper is a participation in the body and the blood of Jesus, then there really needs to be some accountability to the process of taking communion. It's not something that just anybody should be able to do because there are parameters that God gives us that we're to follow in administering these elements. If there are proper subjects of this ordinance, there needs to be some responsible oversight to whether or not those who are partaking in it are proper subjects. And that became actually a very interesting point of discussion in 2020. 
when many churches stopped meeting together because the government said, we don't want anyone getting COVID, so stay in your homes. Don't go and worship the Lord. You know, and a lot of churches at first complied with that. We did for a little while because we didn't want to get people sick. We didn't want to put anybody in the hospital. But after some time, we realized that this pandemic was not as serious as people had led on to be. We began to urge our members to think about coming back to church. And we began to meet publicly again. But some churches went months, even years, without meeting physically together. So at that point, is it okay? Is it acceptable for whoever is a Christian who misses the Lord's table to just break some bread and take some juice and call that the supper? It's not. And we're going to talk about why uh, with some of our time this evening. We want to remember that there is much at stake in taking the table. I want you to turn your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll have it up on the screen for you here too. Because we've got to remember that the stakes are pretty high when it comes to the Lord's table. God sees this activity as a holy and a precious activity. It is an act of worship that should be done the right way. And although our culture by and large, and even Baptist churches in our culture, have very much so downplayed the importance of the table, the scripture does not. And so we should not. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine through 32, the apostle Paul is speaking to the congregation in Corinth. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. In other words, if we think wrongly about the fact that this is Christ's body that's being honored, his blood that's being honored, and that this represents a bond between the body of Christ, the believers that make up the church, then we drink judgment on ourselves. He says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What he's saying there is that those believers in Corinth were practicing communion. They were doing the Lord's Supper, but they were doing it without the reverence that it deserves. They were doing it without a careful attention to what it means and how it should be administered. And so literally people there were being judged by God. They were falling ill. Some had even died as a repercussion of the, the low view they had of the Lord's table. So if that is true of the church of Corinth, should we not also take very seriously the table of God and think carefully about the great blessing that it is to those who are called after Christ? Here's another consideration. The Lord's Supper is spoken of in terms of the church gathered frequently. So when you read through the scriptures, if you were to do a search on your electronic Bible, trying to find all the times that the Lord's Supper is spoken of, you'd be uh, struck by how many times the Lord's table is spoken of as something we have to do together. Just in 1 Corinthians 11, which is one of the cornerstone scriptures that define how we're supposed to take the table, we see the reference of the church gathered together to take communion in verse 17, verse 18, verse 20, verse 33, and verse 34. You'd think if it was just a little thing, they would just mention it once and figured you got it. But if this is important to God, he's going to repeat it so we won't, we won't miss it. The church is to gather together to take this ordinance. It is something that we share, friends. This is not just me sitting in front of the TV with my TV tray having a little meal. This is the, the family of God gathering around a table and partaking in what God has supplied for our well-being. Now, again, there are some exceptions to this rule, but not for matters of convenience, rather for matters of necessity. A couple of examples. 
a Christian who is legitimately a shut-in. They are, they are ill to the point where they cannot even leave their house. There's no reason to keep them from the table. Yes, we want them to gather, and they want to gather with their church body. But if they are legitimately unable to come to church, then it would be acceptable for, for responsible elders to go to that person's house and to administer those elements to them so they would not be denied the blessing of the Lord's table. If two missionaries in an unchurched mission field are trying to plant a church or raise up believers there, and there's not a large congregation, they can still participate in the Lord's table together as long as they are doing it according to the works of Scripture. A Christian who is wrongfully imprisoned. You know, we live in a nation where this is not yet our reality. It might be on the way. But let's say somebody gets arrested for preaching the gospel. They're in prison. They have a strong conviction to follow the Lord and to remain as much as they can connected to the body of Christ. I don't think it would be wrong for two ministers to go and, and give the gospel or give the, uh, the elements to that brother or sister in prison. So there are some exceptions to the rule. But by and large, the table should be something that we enjoy together. By treating the table with care, as we've been speaking of tonight, we acknowledge that there are blessings that are set aside only for the children of the Lord. And we, we see the testimony of Scripture that reveals to us something that's very con contrary to popular belief. Some folks you speak to in the tree, uh, on the streets are going to say, well, we're all children of God. But that's not what the Scripture describes to us. In fact, it tells us that we're born as children of wrath. We are opposed to God naturally. It's only the supernatural of work of God that redeems us, that makes us a part of his family. And children who are uh, in line for the inheritance that the Scripture talks about. So those who are joined to God by faith in Jesus Christ are rightly the children of God. So I'm going to read to you a large passage of Scripture. If you want to open up your Scriptures to Matthew 22, this one's not going to be on the screen today. But Matthew 22 shares a parable um, from the lips of Jesus, and he's speaking about a wedding feast. And I think there's some parallels that might benefit here as we're trying to understand well and uh, by way of God's Word how to deal with the Lord's table and how to understand it properly. So in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse one, and Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, they treated them shamefully and killed them. So what's being spoken of here through this parable is, is Jesus is, is using a story format to tell us about how the nation of Israel has been given every indication that there will be a great feast. There will be a great celebration as God brings his people together and as he experiences this marriage ceremony between Christ and and Christ's bride, which is symbolically the church. And so these Israelites who had every benefit, like we were talking about this morning in Sunday morning's sermon, they had all these benefits. They were the stewards of the oracles of God. And yet these, these Israelites had, by and large, rejected Jesus. They would not come to the feast. And so in verse 7, it says the king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city, meaning Jerusalem. That happened in 70 AD. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads 
and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out onto the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Now, this is an interesting detail that's included in Matthew's account, left out of the other accounts, okay? There's this guy, he's at the feast, but he doesn't look like he's dressed for a wedding. I have read some commentaries that suggested that often at, a, at the wedding of a wealthy man, the, the garments would actually be provided for the guests, that along with your invitation would be given a set of clothes to wear so that you'd be appropriately attired for the wedding. Well, this guy ha- somehow got into the wedding feast, but he's not wearing those kind of clothes. And they asked him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Verse 13, then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. This is a very interesting parable. And this last detail in itself should cause us to stop and think and pause. This wedding feast that God has invited people to there, there is some kind of an official garment that we are to be wearing. And what is meant by that? What is Jesus talking about when he's speaking about the garment that this man lacked? What is the garment? It can only be, if we read the rest of scripture, it can only be faith in Christ Jesus. We are to, as Paul tells us in Romans 13, verse 14, we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. What that means is that our life, being lived in faith to Jesus, should be wrapped up in the things of Christ. That we should, we should be covered in the love of Christ, in the teachings of Christ, that we should be representing him the best that we can. That we should, we should try it with every ounce of our strength to look like Christ in the way that we speak, in the way that we act, in the way that we walk, because we are disciples following after Christ. So his are the footsteps that we are to walk in. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61.10 also spoke of this concept where the prophet says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in him, in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Can you see where... Perhaps the Lord was drawing from this, uh, these verses in, in, in Isaiah to, to illustrate to us that our place at the wedding and our appropriate attire is faith in Christ, that he is the one that makes us righteous and makes us worthy to sit at the same table with the Lord God. So if someone does not have faith in Christ, they're not clothed in his righteousness. They don't have a seat at the table. It is God's decision to bring us near to him. And inevitably, there will be some who partake in the table who should not. There is no perfect system of guarding the table, but we do have a responsibility to do more than just hope that it all turns out okay. The public nature of this limitation means that a public proclamation is best suited for those who come to the table. And that's why we want people to have been baptized so that we have reasonable confidence that they do in fact put their trust in Jesus Christ. But there are other ways that we can guard the table. I wanna go through just a few methods that are sometimes employed by churches that are hoping to be faithful to these commands of scripture. 
So some churches will practice what's called an open table. And that means that responsibility is on the recipient. There's nobody really policing who takes the table, who doesn't take the table. The idea is that perhaps or hopefully they will at least preach the seriousness of the table and they will leave it up to the individual conscious as to whether or not it is appropriate for them to go forward and partake of those elements. The problem here is that, that Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 gets right up into people's business about taking the supper, right? He's instructing the church in Corinth to be more cautious about how they go forward, that they're not to take it in an unworthy manner. And the, the, the passage that we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 11 in the letter itself is not written just to elders. It's written to the whole church. But the elders do have a special responsibility to make sure these things are being put into practice. <clears throat> so this is typically characterized by, unfortunately, a weak teaching time on the Lord's table. Often if an open table is employed where there is no oversight, then there's very little preaching about it. People are just to take the elements on their own. And it's often done in such an introspective way that it really doesn't show that connection with the church body very much at all. So that's the open table. There's also a closed table approach. In a closed table approach, churches will take these ordinances so seriously that only official covenant members of the church in good standing can come forward and take of the table. Now this requires... Firm pastoral oversight, it means that you got to know who your members are. you got to know what they're going through at the time. you got to make sure that their faithfulness is, is set on Christ. The problem with having a closed table is that it can create an us versus them dichotomy between the local church and the church throughout the world because it excludes the visiting brother or sister. You've got to be a member of that church in order to, to partake of the, of the table. Now, some churches will make exceptions if they know you're a member of another church or if they can interview you ahead of time. And, and sometimes there are extra steps taken. But it can really, I think, minimize the connection we have beyond our local body with the greater body of Christ throughout the world and throughout history. There's also a practice that some churches employ where they will hold their communion services at an alternate time. So just looking around you, you can see that this is only a small fraction of our church body, right? And so the idea there is that those who are going to go to an, another church service in order to take the Lord's table are going to be people who are serious about the Lord's table. And that's probably not going to be folks who would, you know, lackadaisically go to the table or would do it without any kind of self-reflection. But it also, I think, prevents many people who maybe don't have the time to make several services a week or have other things holding them back from from attending that special service, from actually enjoying the table. And it can hinder and hurt our understanding of the unity that we're to have as a local church body. And so at First Family Church, we have sort of a hybrid method of doing this. We have a view that the table should be a matter of personal conviction combined with pastoral observation and caution. So you might see that when the Lord's table is being practiced here at First Family Church, your elders aren't sitting there with their heads down, their eyes closed. We're watching people. We are shepherding people by making sure that if there's somebody who seems to be approaching the table and should not, that we can approach them and talk to them about that. And hopefully if there is an issue and we know about it ahead of time, we can do that before the service starts so that it doesn't create any weird, awkward moments. But it's our responsibility as shepherds to try to avoid the kind of dangers that people put themselves into when they take the table lightly. It's not a perfect system. There will still be some folks who 
maybe slip through the cracks that we're not able to notice or that we can't get to in time. But it is the way that we try to do a faithful job of making sure the table is properly guarded. So our first conclusion as we wrap up question 103 is that believers who have confessed their faith in the Lord in an outward and a public way through baptism ought to participate in the Lord's table and receive its blessings. They have ceased trusting in their own broken and dead works. They are now trusting in the completed work of Jesus Christ, the Savior. And because of that, this is a benefit to them and a blessing to their walk in faith. But should all believers always partake of the table? And to answer this question, question 104, we're going to look again uh, largely at chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians and some other places in, in 1 Corinthians and also to the book of 1 John for some, some encouragement from the word. So question 104 uh, is framed like this. What is required to be worthy of receiving the Lord's Supper? And the answer from our catechism is that it is required of those who partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, so that they will not eat and drink judgment upon themselves by partaking of the ordinance in an unworthy manner. So the table is not for those who profess the name of Christ, but do nothing that he commands of them. There are those who say, I was baptized once. I should be able to take of the table. But their lives, if you look even cursory at their lives, at cursory glance, you'll see that there's very little in the way of care for Christ or devotion to him or seriousness in the faith that they say that they have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul warns the Corinthians that there were some folks like this among them in their congregation. He says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Let's break that down a little bit and think about it carefully because we don't want people getting the wrong idea here. This is specifically about those who bear the name of brother. That means that this is an individual who says, yes, I am a Christian. I am connected to Christ. I'm going to heaven when I die and I know the gospel. Somebody who professes faith in Christ, but despite that profession is guilty of, which means currently guilty of committing these sins, not only having one time struggled with those sins, but is right now dealing with those sins in their lives and, and, and honestly not really dealing with them because there doesn't seem to be a true repentance. There doesn't seem to be a, a heart that is grieved by that sin. So it's for those who are professing faith and are currently guilty of sin or is, in terms of their outward identity, they are connected to a sin that defines them. They might be living a homosexual lifestyle. They might be living in sin with their girlfriend or boyfriend. They might be currently abusing alcohol and not really willing to change that at all. Somebody who is identified by the sins that they're committing on a regular basis. And the scripture says, take this seriously, church. Now, taking it seriously means, yes, we need to go to that individual. We need to try to help them to see the seriousness of their sins. We, we need to urge them towards repentance in Christ. But it also means that if they persist in these things, that we're not to associate with those kinds of people because they're doing damage to the name of Jesus Christ in the world. 
It even says, don't even eat with such a one. Now remember, I, I think we mentioned a little bit last week in our Q&A time that originally the Lord's Supper was kind of companioned with a meal afterwards where people would literally sit and eat a meal and fellowship together. We don't really do that as a church very much in America anymore. And uh, maybe that needs to change. But when it says don't even eat with such a one, I think that bleeds over into the idea, don't take communion with people who are like this. Be cautious about allowing them to approach the table. It's not to say that the table is for the mighty Christian who never has to battle with sin. Far be it from us to confuse you in that way. Christians like that only exist in heaven, okay? When we die and we are rid of this earthly body, then we will experience paradise in a spiritual sense until our heavenly bodies are ready for us. And then for eternity, we will struggle not one more time with the sins that oppress us today. I look forward to that time and I hope that you do too. But in the world that we live in now, you will look the world over and not find one Christian who doesn't battle with sin. We see that professed to us clearly and plainly in the book of 1 John, just by reading the first chapter of this book. So look at verse 10 of the first chapter. It says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, Jesus, out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So if you say that you're without sin, you're putting up a front. You're not being honest with people. So you might say, okay, sure, I have sinned. You know, everybody has sinned. Uh, but what about now? Don't I need to be holy now? And so we go to 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have sin currently, notice that that's present tense, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So even the holiest of Christians is struggling with sin. The Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Corinthians, confessed to them. He says, I don't even judge myself because I don't even know how bad I am. I'm not even aware of all the sins that I commit against God. So we as Christians, not only have we sinned, which required our need for repentance and salvation in Christ, but we're also currently battling sins, brothers and sisters. That's why we pray for each other. That's why we keep each other accountable and encourage each other in Christ and show each other the beauty of our Savior every chance we get. And then 1 John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. You see how this speaks of this covenant relationship, not only covenant relationship with the Lord, that vertical relationship, but also the horizontal relationship that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Where is that affirmed for us? It is affirmed in our participation in the table. So first, the table is for forgiven sinners. All living saints battle against sin. So it's for forgiven sinners. Secondly, the table is exactly the kind of encouragement that the weak brother or sister needs when they are struggling against sin, when they are doing true battle against the temptations of the enemy. They would benefit greatly from the encouragement that comes from sitting and taking of the elements of God's table. I might also remind you, how many elements are there at the table? Two, right? It's not like one of them represents you and one of them represents Christ. They're both representative of Christ's good work. There's not a third element that talks about what you do. When you go to the table, you're going to be encouraged that your salvation hinges not on you. 
not on what you have accomplished, but plainly on the work of Jesus Christ. It is his mighty victory that spares you from the wrath of the Father. We should rest our hope firmly on the fact that Jesus is the one who is mighty to save, and he has saved his people indeed. So the unrepentant sinner who comes to the table is not trusting in Jesus to kill their sin. They're simply trying to gain the blessing of a right relationship with God, the kind of blessings that comes when you're walking in faith, but they want to do so without any of the covenantal terms that must define how a sinner is cleansed and yoked to a holy God. We must try to prevent that kind of a a false behavior for their sake and the sake of Jesus' name. We need to keep that from polluting the table of Jesus Christ. So if you come into God's house and it happens to be a Sunday when communion is being, uh, being enjoyed by God's people, and maybe you've been sinning that week, you know that you've been struggling with a sin and God strikes you with a conviction in your heart and you feel, wow, that, that table is holy. I know that it's a set-apart table. I know that those elements represent the blood and the body of Jesus Christ in it and it breaks your heart to know that you did what you did against Christ that week? Should you get up and walk out of the service? Should you just sit there and not take the table? The brokenness in your heart indicates that you love Jesus, that Jesus has loved you first. So what do you do in that moment? You repent. You do what God has made you capable of doing. You repent. You confess your sin to the Lord in your heart and you thank him that it is his victory on Calvary that makes it so that this sin that has had a temporary victory over you cannot have an eternal victory over you. You rejoice in the fact that Christ's power is greater than any temptation that the devil could wave in front of you. You go forward and you take of the the cup which represents his blood spilled to cleanse you. You partake of the bread because this is the body of Jesus, the body of Jesus who walked in the law perfectly and did what we could not do. And then you go back to your seat thankful that your place in God's family is not hinging on your perfection. It's hinging on Jesus's perfection. And he is perfect indeed. So considering the fact that we, we must wrestle with these kinds of things, it's appropriate then to take the Lord's table, but not only after we have some time of self examination. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 28 and 29 says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This does not speak of the kind of introspection that is so popular today. An introspection that takes our eyes off of Jesus so that we might just stare lovingly at ourselves in the mirror. We live in a very self-centered culture. So this urge for self-examination has to come with some disclaimers. It doesn't mean that the Lord's table is all about you. It's not. The Lord's table is primarily about Christ. Contingently, if you are Christ's, you examine your heart because if God is your savior, there should be changes happening in you. And if there isn't, you need to seek him for those changes. But there are so many tests out today that you can take that will tell you all about what kind of a Christian you are. And people get so wrapped up in these tests because they think it's gonna reveal some secret about their faith and it's gonna direct them in a better direction. But I think many of those man-made metrics do more harm than good in reality because they tend to make people think of themselves as 
pots that have already spent time in the kiln. You know what I'm saying by that? As pottery that was once shapeable and moldable, but now is this thing that that test tells them they are. When in reality, we should be thinking of ourselves instead as malleable, shapeable, able to be formed into whatever our father, the potter, so desires to make us. So maybe you're not an introvert or maybe you're not an extroverted person. You tend to be by yourself. But if you read the pages of scripture and it tells you that you as a follower of Christ should be willing to reach out to people and make them feel connected to the body of Christ. If you see in the scripture a command to go and help those who are in need and you think to yourself, well, I'm shy. That's not my nature. I don't fit in that category. Then look to your father who is a good potter who can shape you and change you and, and cause you to be capable of doing things that you might not naturally be able to do on your own. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. So we don't want to self-examine in such a way that we're, we're categorizing ourselves in human categories where we're trying to understand ourselves through human terms. The kind of self-examination that appropriately precedes the Lord's Supper is a self-examination that considers ourselves in light of the perfection of Christ. And at the same time, takes into account the fact that he has provided for us the cleansing fount of his blood so that we might not remain the defiled sinners that we naturally are. I came across a 16th century reformed liturgy when I was preparing for tonight, and I thought it was pretty helpful. I wanted to share it with you this evening. This is just basically a, a, a means by which reformed churches a couple hundred years ago instructed their people to go through this process of self-examination. So there's three parts to it. I'll read through each of them. First, that everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them and to the end that he may abhor and humble himself before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that rather than it should go unpunished, he hath punished the same in his beloved son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. I think many Christians who have walked in the blessed grace of Christ for years and years sometimes forget about the seriousness of their own sin. They are so used to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that they don't take time to reflect on the fact that every sin we commit is a sin that Christ suffered for so that we would not have to bear the shame of it. So the first part of this liturgy encourages us to think about our sin so that we might see ourselves properly as in need of the grace of God. Secondly, that everyone examine his own heart whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given to him as his own, yea, so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all righteousness. That is not to say that, that we take credit for God's blessed victory. But what it means to say there is that there's not some little sin that we're holding on to ourselves that we got to pay for. Christ's sacrifice was complete and total. And by imputing his righteousness upon saints like us, we have the full righteousness of Christ credited to us free of charge as a gift from Jesus. These are things that we should reflect on if we want to fully understand the power of God's table. Thirdly, 
Let everyone examine his own conscience, whether he purposeth henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life and to walk uprightly before him, as also whether he hath laid aside unfeigned all enmity, hatred, and envy, and doth firmly resolve henceforth to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. And so this third aspect of the reflection is, as we think about taking the elements of this table, we think of it not only as a blessing just to us, but a blessing that makes us filled with the grace of Christ so that we might walk out into the world and live more Christ-like lives to the glory of the Christ who has saved us. Now, I wanna make a confession here to you. This cannot be accomplished in the 60 seconds of silent prayer that we share before taking the elements each first Sunday of the month, right? We only pray for a short time silently to give you an opportunity to reflect on the Lord. But if you were to be as thorough as this liturgy encourages us to be, then that wouldn't simply be enough time. But that's okay because the Lord's table is not just a moment in your week, but it is a moment in the week that should be carried into the rest of your week. And as we approach the table, we should take opportunities to engage in this self-examination even before we get to the table. Self-examination that leads to a reflection on the gift of Christ's love should be a regular habit of Christians. And knowing that you will be observing the table with your fellow brothers and sisters should give you good reason to be engaging in that kind of inventory leading up to the sacrament. To accomplish this examination, I would urge you, make sure that you do so prayerfully. This is not just your work of rooting out your sin, but it is you going to your God who loves you and saying, God, I don't even have the discernment I need to know what I should be repenting of half the time. Your scripture is good, it is sufficient to me, but please also reveal to me what I need to see that needs to be repented of in my own life. As Psalm 26.2 tells us, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. We need God's help to help us to examine our hearts, for it's truly he is the one who is examining us. So we are to examine ourselves before we come to the table. A couple more points here. Uh, We are to share in the Lord's table. And in order to do some, one must have at least a foundational understanding of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so this is a classic question that, you know, people who especially serve as elders are always asking themselves, how much theological knowledge is enough theological knowledge to be saved? And thankfully, we don't really have to answer that question because it's God who saves. But there are functions of elders that make us have to at least think and and contemplate on that question. Remember, God filled John the Baptist with the Holy Spirit in the womb of his mother. I doubt he knew too much theology at that point, right? It was simply God's pleasure to save John the Baptist from the very first point of his life. Nevertheless, if a person is baptized upon a a public profession of faith, they likely know the basics of the gospel, right? Including a foundational knowledge of what the bread represents. It represents that Jesus took on flesh through the virgin birth, that he was born of Mary, that Jesus added to his divine nature a human nature, one that wasn't just a facsimile of the human nature, but was true humanity that he brought to himself, that Jesus lived the life that we could not live by obeying God perfectly, never breaking his holy laws, and that Jesus suffered physically in our place unto death before rising bodily on the third day. These are things that should be understood by those who come forward to the table. And again, if you've been baptized, then it's very, very likely that an elder has interviewed you 
and you've been able to profess that you know at least the fundamentals of the incarnation of Jesus. Thirdly, no one should take of the Lord's table unless they are doing so by faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ, in his perfect life, his sufficient death, and his triumphant resurrection. If you've taken of the Lord's Supper and the power of what Jesus Christ did for his people does not soon eclipse whatever feelings of guilt and shame and doubt that you brought into the service that morning, then I urge you, stay around in prayer. Read the Gospels until you take hold of the magnitude of what Christ has done. We have every reason to put our full faith in the Son of God, who was not just a prophet, but was Emmanuel, God with us, willing to live the life that we could not live so that he could offer it as the one worthy sacrifice in our place. Have faith that the table is provided by God as a means of blessing for you. Feeding upon him is a way of saying that we're finding our very breath and our every sustenance in his life-giving work. I'm reminded of John 4, 13, 15, where Jesus says, and did I already pass that up? There it is. But Jesus says to the woman at the well, he says, everyone who drinks of this water that she was pulling out of the well with her bucket says, we'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And she didn't quite understand what was going on there. As we, we have a, a different vantage point than she did, she was just learning about the Messiah's presence for the first time we recognize that in Christ is the living water of eternal life. And when we come to the table, we, we come to a symbolic gesture whereby Christ reminds us that our life is not only begun by his regenerative work in us, but it is sustained by his ongoing grace, which he gives to us through the ordinary means of grace. Fourthly, repentance, love, and new obedience should characterize the life of one who partakes of this sacrament. By repentance, we don't want to mistake that for perfection. Repentance is the necessary response when we look again at the perfection of our Savior and he reveals to us our weakness and our need for him. It is okay to be a Christian and to repent every single day. We need to. And it is God's way of making sure we understand that new sins do not undo what he did for us at Calvary. We should be partaking of this table with a hope that it produces in us the kind of love that God has expressed to us a graceful love, a steadfast and enduring love. He has loved us unto life. He has cared for us, though we were his enemies. And finally, it should produce in us a new obedience. Sprouting up as the seedlings of this love that we just spoke about is a new obedience to the Lord, a refreshed desire to do what God has called us to do, to keep his laws, knowing that they are good for us and that they keep us from destructive error that would hinder our closeness with the Savior. When we think about the Lord's table in closing, have you ever had a really difficult physical job that you had to do? Just recently, my wife was uh, informed of this service whereby you could get free ground cover from tree trimming services who need a place to dump off their ground up trees. And she said, this is amazing. I was gonna spend $30 on some sawdust for our chicken coop, but I can just call this this service and they'll bring in a truck of ground cover and we can use it for whatever we want. And so we're sitting in the front room and we heard this beeping noise 
What she didn't tell me was that you have to take whatever they decide to give you. And there were literally like five or six tons of ground cover that got dumped off in this gigantic semi-style truck in my front. I could not park in my driveway. There was so much. It was seven feet tall, this pile. So me and my boys, God bless them. I'm so glad I have five boys, right? And even my little girl with her tiny little plastic shovel, we spent two days in the sun in the middle of the summer shoveling wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow of ground cover. And I, if there's anywhere in my house where ground cover can be, there is at least six to eight inches of ground cover there. We had to work super hard to take care of this giant blessing that we got, that we got for free, okay? When we were done with that task, you know what we wanted to do? Two things. We wanted to eat and we wanted to rest. We were spent. And I pray that our love for Christ is such that we joyfully serve him throughout the week, that we pursue him, that we rejoice in the blessings that we have in him to the point where we cannot wait to come to the table when our church presents the table to eat and to rest in the victory that Christ has won for us. I pray that tonight's Preaching has brought greater clarity to what the table means and how we enjoy it. I hope that it was a blessing to you. What we'll do now is we'll take some time for question and answer if you'd like clarification or wanted to bring up any points that we weren't able to cover in this sermon. I wrote down a question. All right, Stephen. Um, you know when we were talking about uh, Mrs. Hoover's partake, we, we listed how we were supposed to be in the church gathering. And <clears throat> we mentioned uh, some exception. And it says someone wronged me in prison. Yeah. And I guess my question was, well, what if they weren't wronged me in prison? But I think that would also apply to somebody who's rightly in prison, but is repentant about that. Yeah, there's, there's some really strong prison ministries that do good work like this. And, uh, you know, a lot of those, I've known a couple guys who it really took hitting that bottom before they really stopped and contemplated the reality of salvation. And you get a lot of time when you're in prison to just sit around. And if someone takes up the scripture and just begins to let the word speak to them, the spirit can often use that to do a redemptive work in their lives. And so, yeah, I, I didn't mean to say that at the exclusion of uh, those who maybe sincerely broke the law and should be punished and are serving out their term. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that is a that's a worthy exception to the rule if someone's serious about remaining connected to the body of Christ basically another kind of shut it, right? Yeah, essentially, same thing. Benjamin, do you have a question? You keep raising your hand over there? No? Okay. Well, we are going to be moving on to um, the Baptist Catechism question regarding prayer next week, so we hope that you'll be able to join us. This is a, a blessed opportunity to grow and to really expand the depth of our understanding of some concepts that often we're so familiar with that we remain at a kind of a shallower level of understanding. But when we stop and consider what the scripture says about these things that, that we're familiar with, often we realize that there are layers to this that we haven't contemplated before. So I hope that coming to Baptist Catechism preaching on Sunday evenings has been a joy to you, and I hope that it will continue to help you to grow. Christine, did you have one? Yeah, I did. Yeah. But then what if there's a sin that you committed that you 
struggle with. Yeah. And let's mm -hmm. say you're struggling with it and you ask for forgiveness, but you aren't trusting in him that he has forgiven you, that he took that upon you. Should you partake of the Lord's table that week or not? So you're not trusting him. That means you need more what? Faith. More faith. Who's going to give you faith? He is. He is. So the person who's struggling with sin needs the Lord's table. Far be it from us to keep from the table someone who is weak and trembling in their faith, who needs the Lord to encourage them, who needs to remind them that it is his mighty victory that gives them hope and that fuels their obedience to him. So I would say you absolutely need to take that table. The component that needs to be there is a contrite heart broken spirit, right? A willingness to say, I am struggling, Lord. I am too weak to do this apart from you, and I can't even imagine trying to. So please, God, give me strength, and I'm so thankful that you are willing to suffer in my place. I'm so thankful that even if I struggle with this for days and days, that it doesn't, it doesn't disqualify me from the family. I'm still your kid, and that's a beautiful thing to remember. Stephen. I, I just wanted to add, and maybe even get clarification, so when you say struggling with sin, you're not talking about like how he referred to early on where he said these sins that identify us. No, I'm talking about let's say you did something really bad a long time ago and you um, struggle with that. And you ask for forgiveness. You know he's forgiving you, but you're not trusting in your forgiveness. You still struggle with that yeah. Okay, I got you. It's not something you're continually doing. It's something that has been done, and you. Okay. Right. It's a good clarifying question because when some people say struggling, what they really mean is they've just given themselves over to that sin and they're just going to live in that sin. That's not actually struggling, right? That's submitting to it. So when slave, when you are a slave master to sin, that's not indicative of somebody who truly has the spirit because the spirit's going to grieve our hearts about it. We're not going to be comfortable staying in that sin. But somebody who says, well, I really would like the blessings of heaven, but I also want to hold on to this addiction. I want to hold on to this, you know, this tendency to lie. I don't want to change that about myself. Really, they're trying to get what God does not offer to us. They want a relationship where God is Savior, but he's not King and Lord. He's not, doesn't have any dominion over them. And that's not a relationship that God is willing to enter into. If we are his, uh, then, then we deny ourselves, we take up the cross, and we follow after him. That would be straddling the fence. Yeah. And we don't do it perfectly, right? Yeah. You know, well, we don't, don't do it perfectly. I don't mean that. Yeah. I mean just, you know. So what you're talking about is not that kind of struggling. Right. You're simply, see, the, the, the remedy for that kind of struggling that you're talking about is recognizing the power of the cross and trusting that it is greater than whatever sin was committed. That's, that's how you, you beat that. That's how you, you defeat it. Because nothing you say or do, no sort of penance that you try, no sort of like, like you try to pay God back for it, that's not gonna erase your debt. What you need to realize is that the debt is gone if Christ is your savior. That you're, you're punishing yourself for something that Christ already suffered for. And there's a clean ledger there anyway. So you should still go ahead and if you're struggling that, that week or that month yeah. or whatever. Take that communion. Remembering all of that. Yeah, and spend more time thinking about the, mm -hmm. the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Is, is the struggle of the sin something that displays itself such that where you don't know that you're a believer? No. 
tables for believers, right? Right. And so what's the difference between the sin that you're struggling with, with in comparison to the because 15 sins that you don't even, that you're not really aware of that you're committing, right? So the table is something that believers participate in as the church offers it because it's ordained for you to do so. It's an ordinance for believers. Not for people who are without sin. Not for people who are, because all of us are struggling with some sort of sin. But what about when people are with sin and then they are struggling with that sin? Are they struggling in the sense that, oh, this person maybe not really a Christian? No. Okay, because that's the only way. Because the catechism says, if you're able to discern the body, right? Question 104 says, who's worthy? It starts out by saying, if you're those who are able to discern the body of Christ, and so if you're unable to discern the body, then really it's like, then you're not actually, maybe you're not actually a Christian, and that's a conversation that needs to be had. But if you're able to, you know, you understand the gospel, in other words, discern the body, what, why is this happening? Then you're, and, and you've already been baptized, you've been affirmed as a member of a church, then you take, because, it's, because the presence of sin in our lives isn't something that blocks us from participating in the ordinance. Good question. You might not be the only person who's battled with that, so thank you for asking it. Did I say it was me? <laughs> I just said thank you for asking the question. I know someone who's if you want, if you want to play your hand, feel free. <laughs> well, I spoke about my friend Linda, right? She knew about Don't her father. Me. It's okay. So I really worry about her. Yeah. And me. Keep praying for her. Point her towards Christ. Oh, I do, but she always asks me, she'll call me and say, please pray for me, please pray for me. Yeah. In the back. Yeah, I mean, the question, I mean, I, I mean, we all struggle with sin. Yeah. We all have our hang-ups, whether it be alcohol, drugs, I mean, we can go right on down the line, but I think we need to remember, I mean, there's a lot of people in the Bible, for example, like Peter, when he, you know, when he got performing miracle of fishing, I mean, he said, you, you got to get away from me, man, you know, I'm, I'm so corrupt, and and in my sins, that, you know, you, you can't even be next to me. And, uh, you know, yet, you know, Christ took him in because, you know, he's believed. And we're all going to struggle with that. Yeah. I mean, that's, we live in this world, especially in today's world, uh, there's so much temptation out there. Yeah. And I think that the thing is, is what we're doing now is you, you got to stay close to the Word. Yeah, amen. You know, the scripture puts Christ on display on every page. So we, we need to be thinking about the word, reading through it, and letting it instruct us to exalt Christ. But, you're, you know, you're right. It's, it's beautiful to think about the incarnation of Jesus, that he was willing, despite the fact that he was perfectly pure and holy and needed nothing, he was willing to come and dwell with us. What a gesture of love and generosity. And I, we're, we're so hugely benefited by his willingness to do that that it should help us to see that our, our sin really is nothing in power compared to what he has done for us. I said maybe it's just unfortunate that I think in our culture we have, not intentionally, but we, we've made the Lord suffer like an anxiety-inducing ordinance where people have to think and pause and make sure that there's no unconfessed sin in their life. You don't come up, I remember having a pastor who would say that, you know, you need to even go and make forgiveness, because there's that one teaching where Jesus talks about if your friend has something against you, go and make, go and reconcile with him before coming to the altar. 
Well, that's, that's so anxiety-inducing. Like, who would, how is it even an enjoyable sacrament at that point? Because maybe there's this person that I have something against, or this has something against me, and I have to go and reconcile for that. That's not what it's intended to be. It's a means of grace that's supposed to best blesses us, and that Christ uses to reassure us in the faith as we remember the gospel. This so is what God still, has done. You would still partake if you didn't go to that church? Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. If, I, if I understood that I had somebody that I needed to reconcile with, well then, yeah, I want to reconcile with them too, but I would still go to the table. That verse isn't talking about taking the Lord's Supper. Yeah. So, yeah, it hadn't been instituted yet. Yeah, it, so it's a, but we live in a culture that has turned it into this weird thing, and sometimes that maybe that's in part why it's not done so frequently as well. Um, but it's, that's not what it's about. So. And it is, I think, in some ways, a reflection of the me-centered culture that we live in, too, that we take an ordinance that's really supposed to put our affections and our, our, uh, our attention upon Christ and his finished work, and instead it ends up becoming more about us. That's why I cautioned against like overly introspective self-examination. You don't want to really take that route. All your introspection should be turning you again in a reflective way back to Christ. And the glories of his gift. All right, church, we're, we're very thankful to have you here on a wonderful Sunday evening. Um, let me pray, and then if you'd like to stick around and spend some time talking, uh, feel, feel free to do that. We love you, God, and we're grateful that you have given us so much more than we need, Lord. Uh, uh, we can't think of the work that Jesus Christ did and not be humbled. And so, Help us to think about the work of Christ every day. Humble us, Lord, with the knowledge that we have been loved beyond what we could ever afford or deserve. We thank you, Lord God, that this ordinance is a regularly practiced ordinance because it's the kind of encouragement that we need practically on a regular basis, Lord God. I think that we sometimes take for granted that this is a regular means of grace that you have ordained to protect us and to provide for us. So let us not take it lightly, Lord God, but also let us not allow it to become some meaningless, empty tradition, Father. Help us to think of the richness of what is going on when we come forward and we partake of the cup and we partake of the bread. We love you, Lord God. Thank you for being patient with us as some of these things we, we uh, are learning for the first time. And, and, and even though we've been Christians for sometimes decades and decades, Lord, we trust you'll continue to teach us and sanctify us and refine us. So Thank you for your patience and your long-suffering, and we praise you for the love uh, that caused you to send your son. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to show you something.